This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is Ephesians 6.12. So guys, uh, this is going to be an important episode because we're going to be going over a lot of detail here. But before we get there, thank you to everybody that has left reviews for this show. Guys, if you like this show, if you want to see a show like this continue, we need you to leave five-star reviews for us. So if you think we're, you know, four stars or below, just move on with your life. But wherever you're listening to this, please, please, please go ahead and leave us a review. And if sentences letting us know why you like this content and also just as always i want to thank the donors that donate to undaunted life a man's podcast and to undaunted life in general because the only way we're able to pull off what we pull off as a ministry as a show is because there are guys like you out there that are serious about equipping men around the globe to push back darkness so for all of you guys especially the monthly donors thank you so much there will be a show note uh, there in the show notes a link to where you could go to our donation page and check that out and also just wanted to mention as i've mentioned uh usually weekly from here for the last several months least origin Maine. we are in a partnership with them so that you guys can try out some of their products they make some of the greatest products on planet earth that are made here 100 in the united states of america so if you do jujitsu the best jujitsu geese on the planet rash guards they've got some cool shorts that are going to be coming out on the other side of origin they've got boots work boots steel toe boots they've got jeans they've got hunting equipment or not equipment they've got hunting gear they've got uh, hunting clothes and all that that's part of their new line they're going to be doing some other cool things at the end of this year that they told me about and then over on the jocko fuel side they've got the the Jocko Go Energy Drinks. They've got all the supplements. They've got creatine. They've got the best tasting greens that I've ever had. And they've also got Mulk, the, the Mulk Energy or the protein shakes to go. That's all over there. And guys, if you go either to the Jocko Fuel website or to the Origin Main website, which are both in the show notes, you can use our promo code, which is undaunted. Okay, so the first word of the show, undaunted. And if you use that at checkout, you will get 10% off of your order. So this interview today, not interview, this uh, solo episode today, this is the last solo episode that I'm recording before my surgery. Okay. So uh, if you're new to the show, I'm getting vocal cord surgery on Monday the 10th. Okay. So I'm recording this on Monday the 3rd. So you guys are going to be hearing this on Thursday if you're listening on time, but I'm going to be getting surgery on my vocal cords. I've had vocal cord problems basically since college. Uh, they've exacerbated and gotten worse and worse over time. Earlier this year, it got so bad that I was literally not even communicating at home. I was basically using sign language and texting to my wife uh, and basically whispering to my children. And I've seen lots of doctors. I've gone through a whole bunch of different therapies and potential remedies and a bunch of different tacks. And and now I'm going to be going under the knife. So they will be making an incision in my neck and going in there and, you know, moving some stuff around, adding some stuff and whatever. And hopefully that fixes uh, what's going to be happening. And I just wanted to say thank you so much to all the guys that have sent me DMs and emails and have called and, and just from people from all over the world that are praying for me, that want to see the, the surgery go well. They're praying for the hands of the surgeons and the nurses. Uh, because you know, this is, this is what I do. You know, I talk for a living. I, I think of things and then I talk them through my face hole and, you know, I do it into this microphone or I'll do it live at other places. And it's kind of one of those things. Like if you're a pitcher and all of a sudden you're going to have to have elbow surgery, right? Like, it's like, Whoa, man, like that's my calling card. That's why I'm here on this planet is to throw baseballs really fast. And you know, if things don't go well, that could be that. So I feel a lot of weight on this particular episode today, not 
the least of which because of the subject matter, uh, because a lot of the things we're going to talk about on the show are really, really serious. But in my head, I'm like, is this the last time I'm going to record? You know, I certainly hope not. Um, uh, but this, this, you know, the, the surgery, it doesn't have a high chance of having complications, but there is a complication. It could affect my ability to talk in general, much less talk into a microphone for you guys for 45 minutes to an hour every week or something like that. Uh, but I did want to kind of go over a little bit of housekeeping uh, things with you in terms of what the show is going to look like from here, because a lot of you that have watched the show for any length of time, you've gotten used to the cadence of me doing the forging table episode on Sunday typically an interview on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, either a solo episode with quick hitters or another interview. So what we're going to do is over the last couple of months, I've I've literally gone wire to wire and worn myself out to get a bunch of stuff in the can ready for release. So I've got a lot of Forging Table episodes. Thank you to my team here for helping me get those all squared away. So Forging Table episodes will continue to be released on Sundays. And then Tuesdays, I've got a lot of interviews that have uh, that are unreleased or literally just sitting here on my computer. I'm going to be releasing those, and then we're going to be skipping the Thursday episodes. Okay, so that's going to be the cadence, the release schedule for, uh, for the foreseeable future, maybe at least the next couple of months. And then assuming things go back, maybe like in June, you know, uh, or things go well, rather, then June, I'll come back and, and do my episodes and record new interviews and those types of things. But I've got enough content out there to basically, because I love you guys. I want to keep getting this content over there to you. That's again, you know, I'm so thankful for you guys, whether you're a donor or not a donor, just a supporter. You know, our show was in the top 1% of shows shared on Spotify last year. So that's you guys just sending a text message with our episodes to other people. I'm so, so thankful for that. So kind of as a payoff, I have not missed a week of releasing podcasts since 2017, since we launched this thing. And so that's with, you know, the birth of, of two kids, that's with sickness, that's with all kinds of other craziness, travel schedules and different things that have been going on. And so I'm not going to let this surgery and the potential uh, issues with my voice stop this from, from happening. So you will be getting two more episodes a week, and then we may go back up to three. We may keep it at two. We'll just kind of have to see. But again, thank you guys so, so very much for all of your kindness and all of your concern. I will say kind of where I'm at, because I constantly get asked, I might as well answer it here. Are you nervous? Are you scared? Like, are you prepared? The thing is, is like, there's nothing I can do to prepare. Like I, I literally feel, and I've said this before, that I'm the hoopty that somebody drives around until they're driving onto the lot to pick up a new car and the hoopty literally bursts into flames in the parking lot of the car dealership. Like, that's what I feel like I'm doing. Like, I'm wearing my voice all the way completely out, going into surgery and, and hoping that this surgery is able to take care of this. Um, I am scared. I'm not really scared of not waking up or, you know, my voice being completely destroyed, even though there there is an option that that may happen. I'm mainly scared that it's not going to get better. Because it's like, I don't really have anywhere else to go after this. You know, we, we prayed, we've gone to doctors, we've asked for healing, we've, we've gotten treated for healing, and, and then here we are, where I'm struggling to get through a podcast. As you can probably tell if you're watching me right now, I've got lozenges, you know, in my cheeks, I've got more ready to go, I've got honey right there, I've got tea right here, I've got water, I've got throat spray, I've got everything to get me through today, but that's just not conducive to a long-term career in speaking and podcasting, and so... That's just kind of where I'm at. So if this is the last time I talk to you guys live, it's been a great ride. You know, we'll keep the website up until, you know, the internet is no more, but we're just uh, so happy that we could produce this stuff for you guys. So we, we pray that that will continue. So today we are going to be doing normal quick hitters. So this is what we're going to be going over in the quick hitter segment. Former President Donald Trump getting indicted. Disgraced former Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz getting a new job in ministry in my home state of Oklahoma. The Wall Street Journal survey showing very disturbing trends in America. A Penn State wrestler getting into hot water for calling Muhammad a false prophet. And then Florida Governor Ron DeSantis winning again with parents. 
But today we're obviously going to be talking about the Nashville shooting. The name of today's episode is Nashville shooting when the victim becomes the victimizer. And there are scare quotes around the victim. And we'll certainly get more into that. Now, for some of you guys, maybe you've already forgotten that this even went down. I'm recording this and this went down a week ago. But as you can see, the, the news cycle turns over. Donald Trump's dominating the news cycle. By the time you hear this, because as of right now, he's just been indicted, but he will be arraigned probably Tuesday this week. And there may be pictures floating around of him in handcuffs. And who knows what that's going to be. But the news cycle has certainly turned over. But as I've done before with other shootings or other massacres or other big news stories is I try to do the opposite of what most people do. What most people do is they run to the mic, they run in front of the camera, and they just start talking, right? Before we have even a modicum of detail that would be required to give a full-throated response to what we've seen, they just run and react. And so then over the next several weeks, they have to, you know, retract and be like, oh, I said this and this didn't end up being the case. I like to wait and see. When there's been a tragedy, I like to wait to see what's actually happened. What is the evidence that we see? What are the videos? What are people's opinions? How are people trying to spin this? What is the news media trying to do with this story? And so that's what I've done here. Because I guess my thought is, is if your immediate thought after a tragedy of any kind, including the one in Nashville, is tweet or, you know, just react and not pray, there's something broken in you. And there's certainly been something broken in me. I'm preaching to myself here. That's why I've had to be very active in making sure that I wait and see and try to understand what's happening. And that certainly goes for both sides of this issue. And guys, just I'm going to be taking a lot of breaks today, drinking water, doing that. So just bear with me here. But uh, let's talk about the incident. So a week ago, Monday, March the 27th, a 28-year-old piece of human filth named Audrey Elizabeth Hale walked into a private Christian elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee with two rifles and a handgun and proceeded to kill six people before she herself was killed by quick responding police officers. So she actually shot through glass exterior doors that were locked and proceeded to make her way into the school where she hunted for victims. And the victims were three adults and three young children. So Evelyn uh, Dykehouse was nine years old. Haley Scruggs, nine years old. She's actually the daughter of the lead pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, which was over that school. And William Kinney, nine years old. And then the adults were Cynthia Peake, 61 years old. She was a substitute teacher at the school. Catherine Kuntz, 60 years old. She was actually the head of the school. She was killed as she was running towards the assailant. And then Mike Hill, who's a 61-year-old custodian at the school. So the murderer was a former student of that school, was autistic, was receiving treatment for an emotional disorder, which we haven't gotten a lot of detail, and most notably, identified as transgender. So police searched the parents' home where this murdering POS lived and found a detailed map of the school where the attack took place and a manifesto, which, you know, as of the recording of this podcast has not been released to the public. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. And they've already said that, well, actually, let's talk about it now. They're already saying that they will not be releasing this murderer's manifesto. Now, they may end up releasing it eventually or releasing part of it, maybe redacting part of it or something like that, but they have not signaled that they will do that. I would assume that this has a lot to do with what is probably in the manifesto, which we can assume is a bunch of complaints about how this person was othered in their life as a quote unquote trans person, even though there's no such thing as that. There are people that think they're the opposite sex, but in reality, that doesn't actually exist. And, you know, basically the manifesto will talk about how much they blame Christians or or right wingers or something like that. The manifesto is very likely going to make the LGBTQ lobby look complicit in what's going on here as well. 
I certainly think there is a political component to the fact that we haven't seen the manifesto yet. Because if this had been a, a white supremacist that went and shot up a predominantly black school and there was a manifesto, it would have been on Twitter immediately. So there's certainly something political going on as to why we haven't seen that yet. But as of now, the Nashville Police Department has not released an official motive for the attack, but it all seems rather obvious at this point. So there were the typical immediate reactions, right? The shock and horror. Some people are like, oh, no, not again. Uh, you know, everyone kind of ran to their side of the gun debate, you know, left on and right. You know, liberals and leftists started blaming the guns and Republicans, uh, you know, and blaming Republican policies, I guess. And then conservatives immediately key in on the mental state of the murderer, mostly their identification as transgender. And a lot of people on both sides said, a, you know, a bunch of crap that was either ill-informed and accurate or just flat out lies. And that's what happens when you're trying to respond and react in the in the moment. And then the initial reaction from co-president Biden was especially egregious for its level of ridiculousness. And so if you're not watching this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, I'm sure you've seen this clip, but this was co-president Biden after he found out about what happened in Nashville and he was coming down to address an event that was, that had nothing to do with the news conference to be fair, but look at his, the way that he is talking here from the very, very jump right after he found out about six Americans dying. Let's go to the clip here. My name is Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm Dr. Joe Biden's husband. <laughs> and I ate Jenny's ice cream, chocolate chip. I came down because I heard there was chocolate chip ice cream. By the way, I have a whole refrigerator full upstairs. <laughs> I think I'm kidding. I mean, he just goes on and on and on like that. You know, and it'd be one thing if you're trying to get everybody to kind of relax and, you know, hey, let's kind of ease into this thing before we talk about something kind of heinous. And again, it's kind of hard because he's clearly mentally handicapped at this point. Like, even if you voted for him, you have to admit that he's not all there. But the fact that this dolt came out there and is just basically talking about ice cream, like, man, it's not the only egregious thing the White House has done, but we'll certainly get into that. But almost immediately you knew that there was more to this story than just some demon murdering people, including children in cold blood. And that's because the headlines and stories that started coming out from the media were shocking, absolutely shocking. And the initial reports stated accurately that it was a female that carried out this heinous attack because it was a female. And now that in and of itself is pretty shocking, right? Because I think that, you know, uh, a female, this was only the fourth female mass shooter in U.S. history, or it's something like that. A very, very small number of female mass shooters. But then things started to really, really get strange. Okay. So USA, USA Today tweeted this the day of the killings. Police on Monday afternoon said that the shooter was a transgender man. Officials have had initially misidentified the gender of the shooter. And I mean, when I saw that, I was like, why, why does that matter? So they said that the shooter was a transgender man, but they had initially said that they were biologically female. Like, what does that matter? But then it just kept going. Newsweek tweeted this the day of the killings. Drag shows and gender affirming care for minors were banned in Tennessee this month, while assault weapons remain legal. NBC news writer Benjamin Ryan tweeted this the day of the killings. NBC has ID'd the Nashville school shooter as Audrey Hale, 28, who identifies as transgender and had no previous criminal record. Nashville is home to the Daily Wire, a hub of anti-trans activity by Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, and Michael Knowles. It's getting weirder and weirder. And there were 
literally hundreds more headlines and tweets and articles like those. And it seemed like people were kind of tripping all over themselves to try to be accommodating to the preferred pronouns of someone that was killed after they murdered six people, including three children in cold blood. Now, if we took the totality of the mainstream media's coverage in response to this, uh, it basically comes down to two main narratives that this happened because number one, guns, and number two, Christian bigotry. Again, we're, we're absolving the murdering piece of garbage of, of all responsibility because it's the gun's fault, which are inanimate objects, and Christian bigotry, which is basically just a philosophy to these people. And this is even evidenced by Reuters. They had a tweet from the day after the murders where they said, former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville shooting. Now, when you first read that headline, you might be thinking to yourself, well, there's not a whole lot of there there. Like, that's exactly what happened. It was a former Christian school student that did that. But is that the main thing that we get from the story? Or are organizations like Reuters trying to set up the Christian bigotry angle? But for the mainstream media, that doesn't always cut it, right? Where they can just easily put out some narrative and just kind of stand behind it. They have to go deeper. And they had to go farther in this case. And the reason is because they had a predicament. Their predicament was, in this case, the quote-unquote victim in their eyes, you know, the downtrodden, the downtrodden LGBTQIA plus member was actually the victimizer. And they knew that. They knew that in order to report the story accurately, that's how they had to describe it. And in their worldview, victims can never be victimizers. It's not possible. Additionally, victims are not responsible for their own actions because of how oppressed they are. And yet, the warm, dead bodies of six people, including three children, laid at the feet of this trans, quote-unquote, victim. Now, a lot of people engaged in hyperbole after this story, and when you have any type of a tragedy, there's a lot of hyperbole to go around. And I don't like to engage in hyperbole because I, I kind of have an extreme personality. I like to be bold and all those different things, but I don't try to be hyperbolic for the sake of, be, sake of being hyperbolic, okay? So think of that, what I just said, when I'm about to say what I'm, I'm about to say. Then, in this whole situation, we all got to witness one of the most nefarious things the mainstream media and the left, but I repeat myself, have ever done in history. They managed to turn this murdering, demonic psychopath into a martyr. They literally turned the victimizer into the victim. Here's a tweet from the U.S. Daily Mail the day after the murders. Exclusive. Nashville mass school shooter was rejected by her Christian parents. Then there was this tweet by NBC News the day after the murders. Fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooter's gender identity. We were already fearing for our lives. Now it's even worse. And then we had a bunch of leftist trans protesters storm the Tennessee state capitol, which, you know, side note, is the worst thing ever since they stormed the Oklahoma State Capitol, which is the worst thing ever since January 6th, which is the worst thing ever since 9-11, which is the worst thing ever since Pearl Harbor. I mean, that's how we're supposed to do this, right? You know, democracy almost died because people, you know, stormed the Tennessee Capitol building. And these protesters were videoed holding up seven figures, or seven fingers, rather, seven fingers. Why did they do that? Well, they were trying to signify, silly you, 
that there weren't six victims in this case. There were seven, seven victims. They added the piece of human debris murderer to the list of victims. Every death is a tragedy, but especially when a misunderstood trans person is killed. Again, ignoring the fact that they had just murdered six people and were planning to murder as many more as they could after that. So this sentiment was actually echoed by a radical transgender group called the Trans Resistant Network, Trans Resistance Network, TRN, Trans Resistance Network. They said that this incident was a dual tragedy. Okay. The first tragedy being, you know, the, you know, the slaughter of six innocent people, including three children. And here's the quote from their uh, statement that they released. The second and more complex tragedy is that Aiden or Audrey Hale, who felt he had no other effective way to be seen than to lash out by taking the life of others and by consequence himself. Oh, okay. So this person who went and bought firearms with the express purpose of targeting children for murder and a few adults got in the way, they just, they couldn't find another way to be themselves, to be seen. So they, they just had to lash out. It wasn't their fault. They, they had to, they were forced to. The media has an objective. They always have this objective and that is to deflect blame onto the people that they don't like. Because as we know, if the shooter is an avowed white supremacist or a Trump supporter or has ever voted Republican or something like that, it's easy. The narrative is already baked in. We already know those people are the worst types of people on the planet. But if the mass killer is a person of color or identifies as LGBTQ or something, it'll be a little more difficult. But they can still pull it off, right? They just have to blame conservatives and Christians for being too mean and judgmental, right? It's the classic, you know, the devil made me do it kind of thing. You know, supporters of the Second Amendment will always be blamed. Christians will always be blamed if it's a class that they can point to and say, yeah, this is a sinful behavior and you shouldn't do that. That's what they were going to do. And this all kind of reminds me, guys, of the interview that I did with Elisa Childers last year. So she had me on her show. We had a great interview. And this was the question she asked me, I think, after she moved on to like her, her Patreon site or whatever, just asking me a few more questions. And, you know, we had talked about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, which he actually did twice, not once. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry and once towards the end of his ministry after he, you know, returned back, uh, you know, to Jerusalem, you know, after Palm, Palm Sunday. And she asked me a great question. She asked me, what tables would Jesus overturn today? I started out with all of them, but then I landed on trans, the trans ideology, because it is completely counter to the narrative that we get from Scripture about God making us in his image, male and female, he made us. And how more apt is that than this situation and what we've seen with this egregious conduct by the media? And we'll talk more about that. But for their part, the Joe Biden White House has been just simply unforgivable during this time. Unforgivable. So Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said this week, our hearts go out to the, or this would have been last week, our hearts go out to the trans community as they are under attack right now. Really? We're talking about the trans community? Because I don't remember Kareem Jean-Pierre talking about Christians being targeted for destruction, which is exactly what happened in this case. And if that weren't enough, in addition to the chocolate chip ice cream moronic statement that he said when he first came down to address people, then last Thursday, Co-President Biden issued a proclamation 
to mark March the 31st of 2023, which would have been last Friday, as Transgender Day of Visibility. And he couldn't just do that. He proclaimed in the proclamation, quote, Transgender Americans shape our nation's soul, unquote. Transgender Americans shape our nation's soul. This proclamation was issued three days after a trans person snatched the lives of six Americans, including three children. It, it's not tone deaf. Like, it's not like, oh, you know, they got around the table and nobody mentioned. Yeah, this is probably not the week to talk about the transgender day of visibility and how those types of people shape our nation's soul. Probably not the best time to do that. And with all this and with all these stories, there's all this focus on the killer. And frankly, I get it. You know, I'd rather know more about this murderous, vile creature than less. You know, I'd rather learn from their darkness. Again, Undaunted Life is here to equip men to push back darkness. You can't do that if your ears are plugged and your eyes are covered, right? We need to be able to see the darkness. But there are some very important people that are being lost in the focus of Audrey Hale, and it's obviously the victims. And there are some others as well, but the victims themselves, again, I'll say their names, Evelyn Dykehouse, nine years old, Haley Scruggs, nine years old, William Kinney, nine years old, Cynthia Peake, 61, Catherine Kuntz, 60, and Mike Hill, 61. How much do we know about them? Because we know a lot about the murderer. But even in my research for this episode, I was just trying to find information about these people beyond just their job and beyond, you know, people are sad. It was hard to find anything on them. And then another couple of people that are not going to uh, get as much play as they need to in this situation are the heroic officers that shot and killed the murderer. So that's Michael Cagliazzo, 31 years old. He was nine-year veteran of the police force and a Marine vet. And Rex Engelbert, 27 years old, four-year veteran of the police force. And guys, just side note here, if you haven't watched the body cam video from these two guys, you need to. It's in the show notes. And I mean the entire thing from both guys, okay? I mean, it was masterful. Now, I follow guys on social media and, you know, other different people that have heaps of tactical experience, right? Actual downrange tactical experience, not just kicking indoors, you know, on some dude's land in the middle of Texas. And many of them can be very, you know, curmudgeon with tactical mistakes. You know, they'll post videos and point out the tactical mistakes and all that. They're, they're doing it so that people will learn, but, it's, you know, it's kind of like, eh, you know, just kind of nitpicking. And I'm sure some mistakes were made that we see from these videos from these two officers, but everyone that I saw was incredibly pleased with the performances of all the officers and especially uh, Cayazzo and Engelbert, especially considering the footage we saw from the officers in Uvalde. I've obviously talked about that a lot on the show. I talked a lot about it at the time, but cowards in every sense of the word, they can literally hear children being systematically murdered. They're sitting there in the hallway waiting on a key, waiting on uh, permission over the radio. One guy's getting hand sanitizer, right? Just sitting there with their thumbs up their butts. And isn't it so interesting that we have these two officers, Cayazzo and Engelbert? These guys are sheepdogs. Toxically masculine sheepdogs. And they're being hailed as heroes today. But had they not interceded to take out this murdering piece of garbage, they would have just been toxically masculine sheepdogs not even characterized as sheepdog in a good way. And, you know, they kind of look white. They're like kind of white officers. And so they're probably racist and they're probably going around hunting black people, right? Because they're police officers, they're pigs, right? But in this situation, aren't we so glad 
that a couple of toxically masculine guys engaged this killer, along with about a dozen other toxically masculine police officers that ran towards the sound of violence, towards the sound of danger? Because that's the third group that's not getting any play here are all the other officers that ran into the school and would have shot and killed the murderer or died trying. Do we know any of their names? Do we know anything about them? So just let me just ask you, how much do you know about any of these people? I mean, I'm pretty informed on, on current events and in this particular situation, it's kind of my job to be, but admittedly, I know a lot more about the murderer right off the top of my head than I do about anybody else in this situation. Any of the other people that I've mentioned. And I think that's part of the sickness of situations like these is that we focus on the murderers. I mean, we know by heart the names Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. But can any of us name any of their 13 victims whenever they shot up Columbine High School in 1999? And again, they intended to, you know, have bombs go off in the cafeteria. It was supposed to be more of a bloodbath than it ended up being. 13 people killed and about another couple of dozen that were uh, injured, right? I can name Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Can't name any of the other victims. That's a damnable thing about a situation like this. So I have a lot of thoughts on this story. And so I'm going to go through some random ones and then we're going to start breaking some things down. And yes, we will go into the quick hitters, but guys, this is just going to be a marathon episode. It might be my last hoorah. So here we go. I'm not even going to be doing an enormous breakdown of the facts and the myths of gun violence in America on this show. I'm also not going to be doing a huge breakdown of a biblical defense for self-defense either. Why? Because I've already done that. So after the slayings in Uvalde, Texas, I recorded episode 315 of this podcast, and that's called Standing on the Bodies of Murdered Kids in Order to Take Your Guns. And so if you want that type of information, go back to episode 315. In all humility, guys, I have to admit that that episode is a masterclass on those subjects. So please go back and listen to episode 315 of this podcast. It will be in the show notes. But here are some of my thoughts. They're not in any particular order. It's just kind of how they ended up in the notes on my phone or in the text message threads that I send to myself. This is clearly a coordinated attack. This was clearly a coordinated attack to kill Christians. The forthcoming evidence, the more that we learn, will only work to confirm that. And where is all the outrage that Christians were targeted specifically for being Christians? Because if this group were a group of Muslims that were targeted simply for being Muslim, people would be losing their minds. If this was a targeted attack on LGBTQ people or Democrats or, or leftists or communists or socialists, people would be losing their minds. But, you know, it's just a bunch of Christians that died. So no big deal, right? They're, they were probably bigoted anyway. You know, that, that book that they read that they claim comes from God. Yeah, it's just got a bunch of bigoted stuff in there, right? Coordinated attack to kill Christians. And we're not allowed to talk about it. Also, where are all the calls for a supposed hate crime? Because every time an unarmed black man is killed by a police officer, typically after they were trying to kill the police officer first or someone else, we always hear about hate crimes, right? Now, as I've said before, and probably not in as much detail as I would have liked, I think hate crime is just a useless category anyway, in and of itself, because all violent crimes have an element of hate in them. And in hate crime, you have to prove intent, right? That these people did these things. They killed these Asians or these black people or these white people. And even though, you know, they're never charged with hate crimes when you kill white people, but you get my point. You have to prove that they did that because they have racial animus in their hearts. It's really, really hard to do, but no one's really talking about hate crimes. I think there was one Senator, Josh Hawley. I think he was talking about how this is a hate crime. Like, Hey, when are we going to get to the hate crime legislation here? It was either Hawley or somebody else, but no calls for hate crimes here. 
It's very interesting. And to those in the audience that are in the law enforcement community, the LEO community, you have to do physical and mental reps as it pertains to running towards violence. You have to. So one of my best friends uh, of my entire life, he is a police officer in Kansas, and he's the one that actually sent me the body cam footage before most anybody had seen it, and so I was able to watch that. He and I had a couple of interactions back and forth via text, and I was like, yeah, man, completely the opposite of what those cowards in Uvalde did. And then I kind of caught myself. It's like, well, I'm not a police officer, so it's easy for me to point fingers and say someone's a coward, but I didn't sign on the dotted line or raise my hand and take an oath to say, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to be a police officer. And he said, yeah, man, like I, I do mental reps all the time about, you know, if gun fires going on or something's going crazy that I'm going to run towards the sound of that. And I know he will. I know for a fact he will. I even go back to whenever he was applying to get into the academy or become a police officer or whatever. And I was one of his references and they called me and the last question they asked me, it was a great question. They asked me, Hey, if you weren't in town and your wife and kids were in trouble, I didn't even have kids at the time I did this phone call, but if your family were in trouble and you weren't able to save them and this officer, uh, you know, my buddy, if he was on his way to the house and he was going to be the first line of defense, how would you feel about that? And I said, I'd feel good. My family's going to be good because I know the man. I know he's not going to cower in his, you know, police cruiser. I know he's not going to wait for help to arrive if someone's potentially dying and being hurt now. He's going to go. And I knew it. I knew that without a shadow of a doubt. But it's because of who he is, but also because of the reps he's done. Physical reps are great. You have to get in those physical reps during training, but it's the mental reps. It's, I will pull the trigger and kill somebody if I have to. I will run towards the sound of bullets, even if they're whizzing past my head, if I have to, to save someone else. And if I die in the process, it was my time to go. Another thought I have here is in the future, if you want a, you know, a hint as to the races or identities of the people involved in a mass shooting, all you have to do is this. Read the words or listen to the words in the media. If they talk about the gun doing a particular thing, then the perpetrator is in a victimized or oppressed class like a person of color or a trans person or something like that. But if they talk about the people, the perpetrators in detail, then that means it fits their narrative. Like, you know, when a white police officer shoots a black person, because remember way back when, when it wasn't a black supremacist named Daryl Brooks that drove an SUV through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, which you know resulted in the deaths of six people. It was simply an SUV that drove through a Christmas parade, which resulted in the deaths of six white people that probably deserved it. Right? We, we focus on the SUV, we focus on the gun, we focus on the inanimate objects when it's a person perpetrating that crime that we actually like and that we think is victimized. Because Daryl Brooks is a victim. I don't know if you knew that. He's a victim, for sure. Why? Because he's black. He was a poor black man. And we all know poor black men can't possibly be responsible for their own actions. So it wasn't him that did that. It was the Ford SUV. Another thought here is, again, the, the do something people were out in full force. Do something. We ought to do something. And as I've discussed many times before, they don't, they don't actually mean that. Because when those do something people start giving their policy prescriptions and you dig more than one level down, you realize that none of their policy prescriptions will work to stop things like this. They just get to sound virtuous by screaming do something into the ether. Another thought here is, do you know how you can tell? 
that Democrats are actually full of crap when it comes to stopping gun violence? You want to know how you can tell? If they were serious about this, you know, existential crisis of gun violence in America, they would have passed the so-called assault weapons ban in the first two years of Joe Biden's presidency when they had control of both houses of Congress. But they didn't. They didn't do anything. The same could legitimately be said for Republicans and pro-life legislation on the federal level during the first two years of the Trump administration. They had both houses of Congress and the White House and, you know, a president that was ready to sign any piece of pro-life legislation that came across his desk and Planned Parenthood funding went up and abortion access got wider. Now, Marsha Blackburn, she is a senator from Tennessee. Uh, she put forth the Safe School Act. And, you know, this is basically where they're going to get more funding for, um, you know, security and, and different types of uh, interferences for this type of violence. And you have to ask yourself why no prominent Democrat on the national stage has ever tried to pass a bill that would increase school security. No one. Could it be the fact that they actually like school shootings? Democrats actually like them? Why would you say something so extreme, Kyle? Because it gets them closer to their goal of full gun confiscation. Obviously. And every mass shooting, especially when children are killed, ah, it's fuel for the fire, baby. Just the cost of doing business. Another thought here is that we collectively need to stop reacting to people that mock thoughts and prayers. These people want to get a rise out of you. They think it's funny. That's why they're doing it. Don't give them the satisfaction. And the most egregious example of this from last week was a tweet from some blue checkmark person named David Pakman. He said this, very surprising that there would be a mass shooting at a Christian school, given that lack of prayer is often blamed for these horrible events. Is it possible they weren't praying enough or correctly, despite being a Christian school? So the funny thing about this uh, tweet, if there is anything funny, is that if we had more prayer in school and if Christianity were more ubiquitous in this country, we would likely have fewer, significantly fewer instances of this kind of evil. And see as evidence, we've had a precipitous decline in church involvement, attendance, and Christian faith in this country, right at the same time that we see a tremendous increase in mass violence and despair. But yeah, sure, keep mocking thoughts and prayers. I'm sure he got a lot of claps from people on the left and a lot of sarcastic people, skeptical people that are like, yeah, this guy's awesome. But just don't give those guys any air. Don't clutch your pearls because it's guys like that that are being controlled by demons, essentially. That's why they have these types of worldview. It's pearls before swine with someone like that. Another thought is one of the people that was killed in Nashville was a black man named Mike Hill died. I think he died at the age of 61. Uh, he was a custodian there at the school. And the thing that's interesting here is it was an unarmed black man that was killed by a white person with an AR-15. But the oddest thing is happening. Black Lives Matter isn't rioting. Black Lives Matter isn't demanding that I say his name. Reverend Al Sharpton hasn't shown up. You know, the, the grifter attorney, Benjamin Crump, hasn't done a press conference with this person's family. LeBron James or Colin Kaepernick, they're not walking around wearing, you know, warm-up shirts or sending, you know, you know, memes around that have some pithy slogan on it. Why is that? Again, to use the word I've been using all episode, narrative is why. It just doesn't fit the narrative. But again, a black person was killed by an AR-15, not a, 
not a person shooting the AR-15. They were killed by an AR-15. Nobody can seem to find the time to talk about it, though. Isn't that interesting? Another thought here is people were saying that trans people are way more likely to be victims of violent crime than to be perpetrators of violent crime. Okay? And they're citing some statistics. But the statistics are incredibly bogus and univariate in nature. Essentially, what these people are saying is that they will take all the people in a particular year that identify as trans that are killed via homicide and then extrapolate that out to the greater quote-unquote trans community. But in reality, if you look at the cases of murder, of homicide, the majority of trans people that are murdered are murdered because of domestic violence and or violence that takes place because of things like drug dealing or prostitution. So nothing like trans people just being targeted while walking down the street, nothing like that at all. And this sentiment in and of itself just completely disregards that the person in this situation that was supposedly trans had just murdered six people, including three kids. The fact that they're trying to get the focus on the trans community is bogus. It's fallacious. It's terrible. It's a distraction technique. Oh, well, we, you know, we can talk about what this particular trans person did, but, you know, trans people, they're just, you know, they're the ones that are the real victims. They're the ones that really have to watch their back. Another thought here is some of the morons in the media have said that the majority of previous school shootings were perpetuated by white males that identified as Christian. We've seen that. Oh, they identified as Christian. Well, what these simple-minded morons fail to understand is that you can't just identify as Christian. Like Christianity isn't something made up whole cloth like the trans ideology is. You either are a Christian or you are not a Christian. You either have your faith in the blood of Christ for the propitiation of your sins or you don't. And then part of the reason why we can tell if you are a Christian or not is by the fruit of your life. And I think we can safely assume that if you murder people in cold blood that you're not in fact a Christian. And so stop with this. Well, all the other guys, they were, they were Christian. Oh, Hitler was a Christian. We can tell by their fruit. Pretty sure those people weren't Christians. Pretty sure those people are rotten in hell right now. Another thought here is it will be interesting to see the media try to spin their way out of a scenario like this. Because I thought about this. This is kind of macabre. And I don't want this to happen because that would mean there would be bloodshed and I don't want that. But I really want to see what the mainstream media would do with this. A trans white police officer killing an unarmed black man. Can you imagine? I'm pretty sure the universe would tear in half. That stars would just begin to fall. A trans white police officer killing an unarmed black man. Wouldn't that be interesting? Another thought here, uh, just a few more, and then we'll move on to some other things. All the firearms in this case were purchased legally. And what's interesting about that is that that actually strikes against the narrative of red flag laws that are pushed mainly by the left. Because I doubt very seriously that the left would be comfortable with someone being limited in their rights of any kind because they identify as trans. Because again, red flag laws are, hey, you know, we think we know this person's going to do something crazy. And so we're going to go before the court and we're going to have all their, their guns taken away so they can't hurt anybody and they won't be able to purchase any more guns and all those types of things. And typically those are people that have violent pasts, they have mental disorders or something like that. But in this case, what red flag law would have, that these people would have put a, put in place would have triggered this trans person from being able to get these firearms. It would have to be the fact that they would have to admit out loud that these are people with mental illnesses. 
These people need help mentally. They don't need to be tut-tutted and told that their, their delusion is real. So again, they don't even mean it when they talk about red flag laws. There was another thought here I had. There was actually a great quote by a Tim Pool podcaster. He said, the acts of criminals do not warrant suspension of my rights, right? So he's not a crazy right-wing nut job, but that's exactly the case. A criminal does something bad doesn't mean that you punish me. You punish the criminal and people like them. And the last thought here uh, before we move on to some other things inside of this Nashville story is perhaps the best take of all the takes on this particular case came from Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee. Uh, he, he had this tweet that he put out last week. We're being offered a deal. Accept radical gender ideology, drag for kids, porn in libraries, grooming in schools, compelled speech, the mutilation of minors, etc., and trans people will stop killing themselves and murdering others. Yeah, that's where we're at now. That is a perfect encapsulation of where we're at. And uh, Ben Shapiro framed it similarly on a show by saying essentially that the left used to tell us that we had to accept trans people's thoughts about their identities as truth or they would commit suicide. And we, we don't want that to happen, right? But now we have to accept their thoughts about their identities or they will commit homicide. It's just stunning how we've gotten to this point. But all of this begs a big, big question. Can we expect to see more targeted violent attacks on Christians and conservatives from LGBTQ activists and members? The answer, you bet your ass we will. We absolutely will. In many ways, the situation in Nashville, I think, is only the beginning. I believe that wholeheartedly. And there are many reasons why I believe this. Some of that is that if words and, you know, wrong think are actual violence, which is what these people believe, then you can be justified in responding with violence. That's absolutely the case. And that's what these people are starting to do. Because trans people were already signaling that they were going to lash out violently against their perceived adversaries. Last Saturday, guys, was supposed to be the Trans Day of Vengeance. This was all over social media. You had these transgender people, supposedly transgender people, with their transgender flag up behind them, holding a bunch of weapons. Basically saying things like, we're going to get even here. They're, they're holding these rifles and they're, they're posting these very violent threats on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. There were groups that were raising money to arm trans people and supporters for what they would call demonstrations on that day, last Saturday. Now, a lot of their Trans Day of Vengeance festivities were canceled last Saturday. And they did that for a, a lot of reasons. but. These violent pieces of garbage just saw the writing on the wall. And remember, they are perpetually victims, right? Because these perpetually mentally ill, quote unquote, victims who were planning to be violent towards people managed to turn themselves into victims yet again by claiming that they weren't going to follow through on their own day called the Trans Day of Vengeance. Why? Because transgenocide and threats against trans people. Like, you can't make this stuff up. They were planning to be violent towards people that think that their ideology is terrible and awful and bad for society. And, you know, people that pity them for their, their mental state and they're not getting any help for it. They're just being affirmed, which is not helping them. But they have to be victims. And they're saying because of trans genocide and threats against trans people. And there's an important side note here. One thing that almost no one is pointing out is that 
There is actually a population that is incredibly dangerous to the lives of trans people. There, there really is. Okay. I've done the research. It's not conservatives. It's not NRA members. It's not Republicans. It's not Christians. It's trans people themselves. Trans people themselves. The suicide rate for trans people after they've received some sort of treatment is around 40%. So they have all this affirmation. They have all these plaudits. They get their own month to act out in the summer, and 40% of them kill themselves. The homicide rate against transgender people is so unbelievably small so as to be almost statistically insignificant. And in almost all of these few homicides involve, like I said before, prostitution and drugs. Again, that's where we're at now. And, and we're already seeing an uptick in violence from people in these groups anyway. The Colorado Springs shooter identified as non-binary. The Denver Charter School uh, shooter back in 2019 identified as trans. The Aberdeen, Maryland shooter uh, back in 2018 identified as trans. We can expect to see more quote-unquote trans murderers because these people are people with mental illnesses. And they're simultaneously being told that A, that they're victims, B, that no one except for allies understands them, and C, they must demand after affirmation and acceptance. They must demand it now. And if they don't get it, the affirmation and acceptance that they so desperately seek, they're being taught to take it by force. Oh, you want to accept my lifestyle? You want to accept me as somebody that is normal? Well, I'll make you bend the knee. And the leftist media will continue to nuance and contextualize these attacks and murders to deflect blame onto the victims themselves. They've been doing it since the moment those people were killed last Monday. Which leads to an all-important question here, which is, why are these mass killings happening? Why? Now, I've talked about this a lot, again, episode 315, but here are some of the most popular wrong answers. Because there are too many guns in this country. Well, per capita, we have virtually the same level of gun ownership in this country as we did 50 years ago. The mass shootings and school shootings never happened then, and they happen often now. We're not in the top 10 of mass shootings in the world, again, episode 315, but they do happen often. They didn't happen 50 years ago. If guns are to blame, which, you know, every Democrat and anti-gun zealot claims, then they need to be the ones to explain to me and to all of us why rifles like the ones used in this attack have been around for decades and decades, and yet the commonality of these mass shootings using these firearms, and specifically school shootings, are only common today. They haven't been common for very long in the history, the long arc of human history. They're just coming out of the woodwork now. And another popular wrong answer is because we don't have enough gun laws. Again, what gun law would have prevented the shooting in Nashville? I'm all ears. But here are the right answers for why this is happening. Decline in Christian faith in America. Christians that are actual legitimate Christians are not murdering people. They're just not. And so when you have a decline in Christian faith, you will see the uptick in these types of attacks and the downtick in people understanding that these aren't just people walking around. These are image bearers of God. And they're not to be destroyed, whether living inside the womb or outside or in any other circumstance. 
Also, another right answer is the decline of mental health in America. Because again, these are mentally ill people that do these killings. They're mentally ill, 100%. They're sociopathic, they're psychopathic, they're maybe a little bit on the spectrum or something like that. Maybe they have uh, some multiple personality thing going on. Maybe they're paranoid schizophrenic. These are people that need help. And what they're getting in modernity is affirmation. Also, another right answer is the non-treatment of these real mental illnesses. Because we talk about mental health, but it's becoming like, yeah, you should probably, uh, you know, meditate and you eat kale and, you know, get in an ice bath to help your mental health. But we're not treating people that actually need full-on treatment. Another of the right answers, and this is going to be uncomfortable for many of you to hear, but we as a people, as a society, have allowed our, our supposed most precious assets to become easy targets. And no, I'm not talking about our schools. I'm specifically talking about our children in those schools. That school and most of the schools in this country are soft targets. The school administrators of Covenant Elementary School felt that the locked doors would be sufficient to ensure the safety of their students and staff. But as we saw, locked doors can only do so much. And this is further evidence, evidenced by what the police chief in Nashville told us, which is that this demonic murderer was actually wanting to attack another school, but thought better of it. Why? Because that other school had a lot more security. The risk to the shooter was going to be a lot higher. They weren't going to be able to kill as many people before help arrived. So they avoided that school because they had deterrence in place. The reality is, is that we need armed officers at every single school in America, private or public, all of them. And here's the spoiler alert. The federal government has more than enough money to pay for that. More than enough. We've sent over $100 million to help the Ukrainians fight a proxy war between us and Russia. And as I broke down the math in episode 315 of this episode, it's not going to take that much to retrofit the schools with physical deterrence and to get armed guards on each campus in this country. And if it's a big campus, multiple armed guards. And to the, the people that scoff at that idea, you must ask them, what exactly is the argument against having more of an armed presence at schools in this country? What's the argument against it? Because the only answer that I've ever seen is, well, we, we don't want our kids to see guns in the schools and be scared of them. To which I would say, have you ever taken your kid to a damn airport? There's armed police at airports. How about a bank? Have you ever taken them into a bank? We protect our money, our printed money, with people with guns. Have you ever taken your kid into a state or federal building? Those are protected by people with guns. But not our schools? Really? I mean, guys, how many veterans do we have in our country that need jobs, that need a purpose since they've gotten home from the GWAT? How many? Again, how much money have we sent over to Ukraine to fight their war to protect their children, but not to protect our own? And I've seen videos of veterans popping up last week on Instagram and on TikTok. They're like, hey, just tell me which school needs me. I'll go do it for free. I'll volunteer. I'll do whatever background checks you need and all that. I've got all the training in the world. Set me up. Send me to a school. Don't even pay me. 
And how about, this is another thing that makes people uncomfortable. How about teachers conceal carrying? The head of the school, she ran towards the shooter. She was killed. She was also unarmed. I wish she had been armed. Because you are your first line of defense. You are. Not the police. Because in that situation, when seconds mattered, help was minutes away. And they got there as quickly as they could. They cleared that building and they killed that piece of garbage. But what if the teachers had been armed? And I don't mean all of them. I don't think we need to force our teachers to get their concealed carry. If you don't want to carry a firearm, you should not be forced to do so. But what about the people in that building that would have been okay with that? That could have engaged the shooter and potentially stopped them before they killed anyone. And yet, here's the head of the school throwing her 60-something-year-old body towards bullets. And it didn't work out for her. And we've done that because we think it's bad for firearms to be on school grounds in any way, shape, or form. And one thing that I've noticed that is, you know, as macabre as it is interesting, is that many of these schools that suffer a school shooting, after the fact, the schools will hire way more security and put in more security systems and deterrences inside their schools, which begs the question, for the school boards and the people running these places. Why in the world did you wait until the blood of these students was on the floor before you decided to invest fully in their freaking safety? Why is that what it took? Seriously. You wait, and now we're going to hear there's going to be some story that comes out after these kids go back to school at Covenant. They're probably going to be out for the rest of the school year, I would assume. But when they come back, they're going to talk about the new security system and, you know, the, the you know, shatterproof glass on the, you know, the bulletproof glass on the exterior doors, and they're going to talk about all these different things. Where was that beforehand? There's a lot of money running through that school. My boys are going to be going to a private Christian school where there's a lot of money. And I happen to remember walking around on that campus years and years and years ago and I just walked right into the high school. I was looking for somebody on that campus that I was supposed to be meeting, and I kind of went to the wrong part of the campus. I got turned around, and then I just walked right into the school. I'm walking by classrooms, walking by the gymnasium, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, if I was a wolf, this is easy pickings right here. This is fish in a barrel. But again, we don't think in these terms because bad things just don't happen, right? Yeah, until they do. So. How do we stop these mass shootings? Again, episode 315. Again, I'll tag it. A ton of detail, but I'll do the quick rundown that I did from that episode. The best solutions possible right now are first to focus on micro problems. So first, install full video security and barricade systems in all public K-12 schools in America immediately. And, you know, go ahead and do that for private schools as well. Two, where possible, retrofit every single K-12 through school in America with a single point of entry on their school buildings. Number three, Begin the planning, hiring process, and training for full-time security officers to be placed at every single school in America immediately. And four, train the students and faculty and staff on what to do during school shootings. There was a lot that was actually done during the school shooting that helped preserve life because they had actually practiced it and drilled it, just like you would a fire drill or here in Oklahoma, a tornado drill. So those are the micro problems. But then the macro problems are, number one, address the crisis of fatherlessness in homes because a lot of these mass shooters don't have fathers. Number two, address the mental health crisis. I've talked about that at nauseum at this point. Number three, address the prescription drug crisis. 
Because a lot of these kids that go on these shooting rampages are on SSRIs, you know, these supposedly harmless SSRIs. Number four, address the end of shame. We don't have a shame culture and it's affecting us. It's leading to more cowardice and more people lashing out. And that's the fifth thing is address societal cowardice. But then in all of that, how should Christians respond to this story? How should we as people of God respond to this story? The first thing I thought of is that we should always seek out and hold up truth. Because there is truth in this situation, and a lot of people are trying to obfuscate that and hide it or diminish it or blur it. But we need to seek it out. And when we find it, we must uphold it. And then in this situation, it just absolutely breaks my heart. Just breaks my heart when I was preparing this interview, just thinking about nine-year-old kids and the families and what they're going through right now. We need to mourn with those who mourn. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. Not right now. But maybe it's supporting the families financially. Maybe it's doing something and we'll keep our ears out with Undaunted Life to potentially be doing something. But we need to mourn with those who mourn, even if we can only do it through prayer. But also, as Christians, we must prepare ourselves to protect image bearers of God. So in some Forging Table episodes we have coming up, we'll be going over Nehemiah. So spoiler alert for uh, some of you guys, or I guess I just (laughs) let the cat out of the bag. But especially in the first uh, four chapters, and even more specifically, chapter four, we see image bearers of God preparing themselves to fight off people that are going to thwart them in their actions to serve God. And a lot of Christians get real squeamish when you talk about physical violence and all that. And then you have morons like Shane Claiborne that go out there and go around the country convincing Christians and well-meaning conservatives to give up their firearms as if that somehow makes them safer, that an inanimate object that can be used to protect them is now no longer at their disposal, thus making them more susceptible to the wolf. But we must prepare ourselves to protect image bearers of God. We have to prepare our bodies. We have to prepare our minds. We have to train to do it in those situations. As I've said multiple times at nauseum at this point, when someone's being violated, if you come across a, a woman being raped, you know, in an alleyway, now's not the time to text your, your prayer circle, to message one of your accountability buddies, to call your pastor and ask for advice, to, you know, do a, a, a prayer circle, to, to sing a worship song. What you need to do is you need to stop the wolf from trying to devour an image bearer of God. You need to be ready for that. And as Christians, we also must understand that not all of our enemies are of this world. Go back to Ephesians 6.12 from the very top of this podcast, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are demonic things that are happening in our culture and, and all over the globe. There are demonic presences that are trying to keep people from God and trying to destroy them in the process. And in a lot of those times, these forces are good at it. They're able to make that happen. Because ideologies like transgenderism or mental illnesses that go unchecked that lead people to lash out violently, these are things that could be handled, but they're not because we're not doing our part to push back the spiritual darkness that we see. And also as Christians, again, a lot of this is going to make everyone uncomfortable, but here we are an hour in. We must work to destroy the ideology of transgenderism 
while simultaneously loving people with mental illnesses that cause them to think they were born in the wrong body. We must hold those things in tension. Because the ideology of transgenderism comes from the pits of hell. But the people that are swept up in this ideology, in this mental illness, in this societal contagion, they need Christ. It's the only thing that can save them, not just from that ideology, but in general. But many pastors and evangelical leaders are going to take the goings-on of the last week and they're going to they're going to get the wrong lesson from it and they're going to act according to the wrong lesson many of them that were signaling support for trans communities or even a little bit of support or something like that will now fully support it with the idea that if they do that if they acquiesce if they affirm if they accommodate that they won't marginalize somebody who may end up being a mass murderer they're going to think that they're going to buy the lie that somehow Christian bigotry and pointing out sin and pointing out demonic presences and ideologies in this world is going to lead to murder. And thus, they're either going to ignore it or they're going to go to the full affirmation route. So here's how I'm going to wrap up my discussion here about what happened in Nashville. I call on all Christian pastors in this country, many of who listen to this podcast, or we have people that can easily just text it over or email this episode over to them. I call on all Christian pastors in this country that have not spoken to their congregations in a clear way on the issue of transgenderism to do the following. I'm going to break it down for you. Step one, reach down the front of your pants. Step two, make sure you still have your nuts. Step three, Prepare a sermon that expresses a full-throated opposition to the trans ideology. Step four, batten down the hatches. That's it. Your flock is confused on how to comport themselves in this situation. It is your job to lead them. Not to tut-tut around the issue, not to, okay, we're just going to move on to the next thing. We're going to go on to, you know, uh, the third week of this five-week series on some random topic that no one really cares about because they need God, not another TED Talk. It is your responsibility to lead your flock. What could be more important to discuss in this moment than this, than what the trans ideology is doing? And if you're a pastor and you're listening to this right now, and you need a little help, well, here's a jumping off point from a news anchor that might help you. Let's go to the clip. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful, and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this, they brag about it. That saved a wretch like me, goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. 
Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. That unwillingness to agree, that failure to acknowledge a trans person's dominion over nature, incites and enrages some in the trans community. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. So Christianity and transgender orthodoxy are wholly incompatible theologies. They can never be reconciled. They are on a collision course with each other. One side is likely to draw blood before the other side. That's what we concluded last week. And he goes, he goes on from there. But there you go. <clears throat> There's your jumping off point. If you've read through scripture and you just have no earthly idea what to say and how to push back against the darkness of the trans ideology, Tucker Carlson's got you hooked up. A conservative TV commentator. But if you're a pastor that's worth your salt, you already know what you need to do. You just haven't done it. Because, oh, you don't want to be divisive and you don't want to be political and you don't want to, you know, alienate any of the trans community. And you, you have trans friends and you love trans people. And, you, you know, your, your sermon dies a death of a thousand qualifications before it even gets off the ground, before you even start punching it into your keyboard. What's your excuse now? There are people like that that are coming for people in your congregation. They're coming for your children. Whether in a murderous rage like that person did last week in Nashville, or just because they want to change their ideology. They're coming for them. What are you going to do about it? All right, guys, let's transition to the quick hitters. So here's the first one right here. Former President Donald Trump getting indicted. Okay, so this is according to the Daily Wire. A Manhattan grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump in connection with so-called hush money payments to Stormy Daniels in 2016, according to a report. The felony indictment was filed under seal uh, or filed under seal by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, according to the New York Times, and will likely be announced within days. It's already been announced. At that point, Trump will be compelled to surrender and face arraignment, according to the report. A lawyer for Trump confirmed an indictment to the Associated Press. The former president is now the first former president in U.S. history to ever face criminal charges. So this story was shocking to most people, which should make you wonder, why? Why is this shocking? They've literally been gunning for this guy since he came down the escalator at Trump Tower. What was that, 2015? Maybe in 2016? This was inevitable. They were always going to find something. And here's the other thing. This isn't the only thing. He's going to be indicted on other charges before the midterm, or not the midterms, but before uh, the run-up to the general election is even done. That's definitely going to happen. But I will say about this story is I'm inclined to agree with the sentiment that this pretty much guarantees that Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination. I think it does, which almost assuredly guarantees that Democrats will retain the White House. Donald Trump is easily beatable. And I know, I know you wear your MAGA hat and you think 2016 is going to happen again. And you think he's just going to ride his wave that he did in the first three years of his presidency and all those different things. But I don't know if you guys, you know, have calendars on the wall. I know that's something from a bygone era, but I just checked the other day. It's 2023. It's not 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. It's 2023. The world changed in 2020. And guess what? We've already seen Donald Trump lose to Joe Biden. He's a terrible candidate, but so are the rest of them. Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom, uh, random people that I can't even think of because they're not important. Whoever they run, they, they're going to beat Donald Trump. 
Because again, regardless of what you think about January the 6th, it happened and it was terrible. And most people think it was Donald Trump's fault. Even after all the video came out telling a different story about what exactly all that looks like. And that was Tucker Carlson again. But he already lost by millions and millions and millions of legitimate votes to a dead person that didn't even campaign. He just sat in his basement and ate ice cream. And you think that that's just not going to happen again? Now, a lot of people are saying that, oh, this is just Alvin Bragg, the DA in New York City. He's got an axe to grind. He promised to do this, uh, do this before he was elected. So he's just following through on his promise. Now, that can be true. But what I actually think is that the Democrats are doing this on purpose because Democrats have stupid ideas, but they're not dumb. They think Trump is super beatable because he is. And we saw this back in the midterms. There were Democrats that donated money to a lot of people during the Republican primaries that they thought were more Trumpy and more MAGA and more easily beatable. And aside from J.D. Vance, they were right. As Trump will say, well, I, I endorse, you know, all these people, dozens and dozens and dozens of people, and they won. It's just a few races I endorse that they lost. But when you endorse someone that was already going to win a race, like that doesn't mean anything. Like Donald Trump endorsed my buddy, Mark Wayne Mullen. Mark Wayne Mullen won by like 30 points in Oklahoma. That wasn't because of Trump. He was going to win by that much anyway. He would have won by that much had Trump said, yeah, I don't really, I don't really like the guy. Like he still would have gotten it. Okay. He still would have been the Senator here in the state of Oklahoma. He'd be like waiting until the final three seconds of a basketball game. And one team is up by 30 points and being like, yeah, yeah, I think that team's going to win. It's like, that didn't need to be said. That's one of the dumbest things you could have possibly said. We're watching it right now. But all of a sudden, we're supposed to just pretend like the Democrats aren't trying to do this to get more people behind Trump? Because I, I guess Trump has raised already like $4 million in the last few days after this indictment came out. His gap between him and Ron DeSantis or anybody else in the Republican poll has continued to widen. Why would you think that the Democrats aren't doing this on purpose? Because again, I, I've signaled on this podcast quite a bit. I'm a big time DeSantis guy. I love DeSantis. I think he is the best uh, person to be the next president of the United States, regardless of party. But it might be best at this point to wait until 2028. It might be. I know it sounds ridiculous to say, especially for somebody that is going to support Ron DeSantis. And if he runs during the primary, I very likely would vote for him in the primary. But, but who knows? Maybe that's best. Because if Trump is the unstoppable force and all the other people that got into the race or, you know, you'll have Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or any of these other random people, they're just going to be taking support away from you, not from Trump. Trump is a known entity in the Republican Party. And if they want him to be the guy again, that's just what's going to happen. Now, that would kind of suck for DeSantis because he's going to be out of office in 2026 because, you know, his term, his second term as governor of Florida will be done. Can he keep momentum for two years to run in 2028? when it'll be a new Republican versus a new Democrat, regardless of how you slice it? Maybe. But my big takeaway on this first quick hitter is this might be a crossing of the Rubicon for the United States. I just don't think there's any coming back from this. I think the gloves are officially off now. We're starting to try to jail our political enemies. Again, Donald Trump is the first president in the 250-year history of this country that is being brought up on charges. Now, here's the other thing that you can say. He's being brought up on charges for hush money that was paid to a porn star that he cheated with, cheated on his wife with, his third wife or whatever. It's not exactly a good person that that's making all, you know, he's he's the source of the story and he's he's a villain in this story for sure, even though there are additional villains. But this is astonishing what we're seeing as a country. 
And Republicans are starting to fight back a little bit. Conservatives are starting to fight back a little bit as well. They're understanding that, oh, the other side hasn't been playing fair. And we've been morons for decades thinking that if we're just going to be nice, that they'll be nice back and they're not being nice back. So how long until Joe Biden is indicted after he leaves office? I mean, that's where we're at now. There's no going back. Our next quick hitter here, disgraced former Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz getting a new job in ministry in my home state. So this is according to the Christian Post. More than two years after a sex and leadership scandal led to his firing from Hillsong Church NYC, Carl Lentz is now back in ministry as a strategist at the Transformation Church led by Pastor Michael Todd in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In a statement to 2 News Oklahoma, Transformation Church's executive pastor, Tammy McCorders, isn't that interesting, said she they believed that Lentz has been restored and are pleased to have him help others experience restoration as well. After two years of Carl being in his own discovery and healing process, he has shown readiness to use his God-given gifts towards the local church again. We believe in Carl, his marriage, his skill set, and his restoration, restoration McCorders said. So here's an interesting thing. Aside from mentioning his God-given gifts, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about God in his uh, recovery process, right? You know, he's having his own discovery and healing process right now, but now it's time to unleash his God-given gifts. But has God restored him back to ministry? Because perhaps his marriage and family have been restored, and I certainly hope so anyway. But Carl Lentz, he's still going to be a problem no matter what he does because of what he believes about God in the Bible, not necessarily what he's done. Again, he will always be tinged as the guy that, you know, was part of the downfall of Hillsong and horrific leadership uh, defaults and his sexual deviancy. But as concerning as all that, that is his teachings at Hillsong in NYC were, were really, really disturbing, mostly vapid. And a lot of people that think they're going to heaven are going to hell because of the things that they believe that Carl Lentz said. And he's joining a leadership team headed up by Pastor Michael Todd, who's basically Stephen Furtick with dreads. And no, that's not a compliment. It's just heretical self-help nonsense. It's whatever is convenient to me at the moment, including stuff that tut-tuts the trans ideology. That even came here recently from Michael Todd. But Carl Lentz, will 100% for sure launch his own church within the next five years. I, I think the writing's on the wall for that. Maybe it'll be even sooner. But this is very typical, right? We, we see this happen quite a bit. You'll see a politician that's disgraced for some reason. Maybe they go to prison or something like that. They go quiet for a while, a couple of years, and then they get a job in some random office, some random political office, maybe at a think tank or something like that. And then they may run for a small office and then they'll try to make themselves all the way back to where they were. We see this in politics and I guess we're going to see this in ministry. He's going to have his own church. But my big takeaway here is you can hold these two things in tension. You can want Carl Lentz's spiritual family and personal life to be restored, but you could also want him to never serve in Christian vocational ministry ever again. You can and should hold those two things in tension. Because I am so thrilled that Carl Lentz and, their, and his wife have their relationship still intact, that they didn't get divorced, even though they could have on biblical grounds. She could have divorced him on biblical grounds. I'm glad that his kids are still part of the family, and seemingly there's, there's good things happening there, and there's fruit inside that family. 
but I don't want him anywhere near a pulpit. It has nothing to do with the fact that he cheated on his wife multiple times with multiple women. It's because he believes things that send people to hell. He's not preaching a real gospel to people. He's preaching a partial gospel, a moral therapeutic deism version of the gospel. As I mentioned before with Andy Stanley, who I think is a heretic and shouldn't have his church anymore, I'm not wishing for his death. I'm not wishing for him to have some sort of moral failing. I'm wishing for him to lose his job in whatever way that that takes place, because I think it's better for the capital K kingdom of God in order for that to happen. And the same thing I would say for Carl Lentz. My hope is that he works at this church. He realizes, yeah, maybe I don't want to get back into vocational ministry. And then he just, he's like the next Rob Bell. He just says stupid things and writes stupid books and Oprah loves him. And then he just kind of fades off into oblivion. But if he's trying to pretend to be a Christian pastor, I think that's terrible for Christianity in America. All right, next quick hitter here, the Wall Street Journal survey showing a very disturbing trend in America. So this is according to the New York Post, and I will also uh, link to the actual Wall Street Journal article where they show all these results as well. Long-held values like patriotism, religion, and community involvement are in retreat across America, according to a stunning poll released Monday. The Wall Street Journal NORC survey found that just 38% of Americans said patriotism is very important to them, down from 70% who said the same in 1998. Slightly more Americans, 39%, placed the same importance on religion, down from 62% who said faith was very important to them 25 years ago. The percentage of Americans who said raising children was very important to them fell 30% in the new poll, down from 59% in 1998. Meanwhile, the share of Americans who valued involvement in their community as very important fell 27%, down from a high of 62% in 2019, the last time the question was polled. One virtue long associated with liberals, a belief in tolerance for others, is now deemed very important by 58% of Americans, down from 80% four years ago. By contrast, the only value that has grown in worth to Americans is money, with 43% calling it very important compared to 31% who said the same in 1998. So right to my big takeaway on this one. None of these results should be surprising to anyone that's been paying attention. Patriotism, religion, Raising children, community involvement, tolerance, all falling off a cliff. Yeah. You're seen as bigoted if you're patriotic or religious. You're a weirdo if you want to raise kids and have a big family. Being involved in the community will only if it's the right types of people in the community. And yeah, we'll tolerate you, but only if you believe the things that we believe. Well, yeah, that's America right now. And the focus on money going way up? Well, of course. Things are more expensive than they've ever been. There's more wealth than we've ever seen. The, the United States government is spending more money than God's ever seen. And that's just kind of the world that we live in. The, the story should not have been the results of the survey. The story should have been where the results of the survey will continue to go if they continue to conduct it. Think about 25 years from now. What is that, 2058? Can you imagine what the answers are going to look like then? Some of you won't be here, but a lot of us will be. Do we all of a sudden see the trends in patriotism, religion, raising children, community involvement, tolerance, and money going in different directions? I mean, again, the world that we see right now is not even recognizable to somebody from 1998. It's not recognizable from somebody from 2015. And yet here we are. So I'm very, very concerned about the future, but hopefully something stems the, uh, the onslaught that we're seeing with all that.
All right, next quick hitter here, a Penn State wrestler getting into hot water for calling Muhammad a false prophet. So the Penn State wrestler in question um, was a guy named Aaron Brooks. He's a 184-pounder from Penn State, and Penn State is the, the most dominant wrestling program of the 2000s. It's not even close. I think they've won 10 out of the last 12 uh, national team titles. But Aaron Brooks won his third straight 184-pound national title a couple of weeks ago back in Tulsa, and Mark Wayne Mullen and Donald Trump were there in attendance. And that in and of itself would have been impressive enough because frankly, not too many people have done that, but it's what he said in his interview right after the match that actually made the headlines. So let's go to that clip here. David, I know uh, share uh, a strong faith. How does that help you on a night like tonight? Um, it's everything. Christ's resurrection is everything, not just his life, but his death and resurrection. You can only get that through him. The Holy Spirit only through him. No false prophets, no Muhammad, no anyone else. Only Jesus Christ himself. Power and finesse. Your calling card. The Holy Spirit. What, what, Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Power. Holy Spirit, power. It's everything. That's where it's from. Where'd the finesse come from? Holy Spirit as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mom and dad, maybe. Yeah. A little bit of both, but oh, God. I'm put in perspective winning three of these in a row. In dominating fashion, by the way. I'm blessed. Um... God used me. He gives me this platform for this right here to exalt. So that's all it's for. When I'm suffering, cutting weight, home from, not away from my family, it's all for him. So it's all for his glory. Enjoy it. Put in the time and the sacrifices. Congratulations, Aaron. And so if you're a reasonable human that has a functioning brain, you might be like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's a Christian guy who's obviously he's still out of breath from winning another national title after a really, really tough season and a really tough tournament where he took down like the number one, two, four ranked guys. Like, I mean, he, he did work in this tournament, man. Third national title. He's out of breath. He, he's a Christian. He, you know, quote some scripture there, but uh, the backlash from people and then I guess this is my big takeaway here. How dare a Christian actually say Christian sounding things. That was like the majority of the people. I remember even like Ariel Hawani. He's the the guy who, who covers a lot of MMA and stuff like that. But he likes to get into all these other little persnickety areas. He's like, I, I can't believe they allowed him to say such a thing. That Muhammad was a false prophet. They let him say that. They actually showed that on air. How dare they? And the reason is because the world is universalist in its bent, really. Like, People want to just hear that their worldview is equally pleasing to God as every other worldview in a belief system and that, you know, basically all dogs go to heaven. But people just can't stand to hear an honest Christian say honestly Christian things. Because as a Christian, as a bold Christian that hopes that if I ever have a microphone in in front of my face, not certainly at the NCAAs, but that I would say something very similar to that. Because, you know, yeah, it's one thing to talk about you know, double eggs and single eggs and sprawls and all that kind of stuff that would go into a tournament. But he talked about a savior. He talked about how you could have it too. But everyone's focusing in on the fact that he said, no false prophets, no Muhammad, those types of things. But guess what, guys? If you're a proponent of Christianity, that's exactly what you think of Muhammad, that he is indeed a false prophet. Like, what if it had been a Muslim wrestler and he got on the mic and said, Allahu Akbar, which means God is good. And if he said, you know, all praise be, to Allah and to his prophet Muhammad. And if he said the Shahada and all these other different things, like, would you have been like, how dare he say that? How dare he say that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah? Well, that's what Muslims believe. They can be wrong and they are, but that's what they believe. 
There was no shock and awe. The shock and awe came because it was a Christian. It was a Christian that said a very Christian, but seemingly sounding bold thing in modernity. But good on him. Three-time champ and a bold follower of Christ. I love it. All right, last quick hitter here, guys. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis winning again with parents. This is according to The Blaze. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill into law effectively enabling all K-12 students in the state, including those who are homeschooled, to take advantage of school vouchers. HB1 was passed in the State House on March the 17th and in the Senate on March the 23rd. DeSantis signed it into law Monday at an all-boys Catholic high school in Miami. The law will eliminate the previous financial eligibility restrictions such that students of all economic backgrounds can participate in the state's voucher system so long as they are residents. The law also scraps the enrollment cap on parents who can participate in the Family Empowerment Scholarship for Educational Options. Whereas a family of five making over $129,880 was previously ineligible for the scholarship, which is funded through the Florida Educational Finance Pro- Program, now they and others of varying means will be able to apply for assistance. assistance. Lower-income families will, however, continue to receive priority. In addition to making sure parents have a choice in the schools they support and send their children to, the legislation requires the development of a government website informing parents of every educational option available to their family. Here's the thing. Ron DeSantis just can't help but win. I know what I said earlier in this podcast. He might need to just hang on to his hat until 2028 or something like that, but he just can't help but win. He just keeps making the right decisions, pulling the right cords, and it's just going well for him. And my big takeaway is more of this, please. Not just from Ron DeSantis, but from governors and state houses all across the United States of America. Oklahoma, you're on the clock because. A universal school choice bill has passed the Oklahoma House, and I really have no idea where it is with the Senate. I I tell you, it is frustrating as all get out to even figure out what's going on in your own home state. I know what's going on on the federal level, but just trying to figure out where a bill is, you know, here in my own state is already crazy. But the the governor of my state, Governor Stitt, has already said that if a, a universal school choice bill comes across his desk, he will sign it. So essentially, you would be able to use your tax dollars that was going to the public schools And you could use it to go to a private school, a charter school, or to even homeschool your kids. And there would be varying levels of that. More of this. Absolutely more of this. The public school system has violated the trust of the people in America. 2020 exposed them for the frauds that many of them are, especially the teachers unions. And so, and at this point, most of the teachers, even the well-meaning Christian teachers in those schools, they cannot stop the secular onslaught of the things that are happening in those schools. Parents should not be forced to go to them right? And the government is not forcing you in terms of like guys with jackboots, you know, with a bayonet in your back, forcing your kids into these schools. But a lot of parents don't think they have options. So I'm glad that the state of Florida and Ron DeSantis, they're putting something out there where parents can evaluate all the options that they have. And if they do choose an alternate form of education, private schools, charter schools, uh, you know, anything that would happen with homeschool or something like that, then they can use that money for that. Because I pay a lot in taxes, in the community that I live in, to support a school system that my boys will never be a part of. I should be able to use that money for my family. All right, guys, we made it. This is maybe the longest solo episode that I've done. You know, it's it's at least up there. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost out on Daunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Again, just a reminder, go to the Origin website. It's right here in the show notes to check out the full line of Origin and Jocko Fuel products. Geese, jeans, boots, hunting gear, protein, energy drinks, supplements, all that is there. Use the promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off your order. Here in the rest of the show notes, I've got all the notes to the things I've already tagged in this particular episode. But again, I just 
just want to say thank you. Thank you so much to our donors. And we just appreciate all the prayers uh, for everything going down again. April the 10th is when I'm getting my surgery, Lord willing. And and hopefully that fixes it. So I'm very, very hopeful. You know, I have my doubts because I'm a doubtful person just by nature, but I'm really, really hoping this goes through. I appreciate you guys very, very much. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah 